Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 33 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, welcome to the show where every week I'm having deep, vulnerable and unedited conversations with men that have overcome adversity to thrive in their business and their lives. It's amazing to have you here. Thanks for joining in. And I hope you're having an incredible week. Check in with yourself. How are you doing this week? Are you feeling on purpose? Are you feeling on mission? Are you doing what you were put on this earth to do? I know sometimes it gets busy, life's busy, things are going on, you feel overwhelmed. But take this moment, and I'm giving you 30 seconds here just to check in with yourself. How do you feel in your body? Do you feel good or do you feel exhausted and overwhelmed? I'm not trying to make you feel bad, I just am ridiculously addicted to the truth and to reality. And so if that's your feeling, if you're not feeling on purpose or you're not feeling on mission or you're feeling out of alignment with your body, then it's time to make a change. Bring some reality to the situation and just feel how you're feeling in this moment. My hope and my deep desire is that you're feeling amazing. You're looking outside and you see blue sky, a beautiful day and everything's going well in your life and you're feeling completely aligned and on mission. That's the natural state that we should live in. Anything else is to fight against our true nature. My thoughts for the week, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the people I work with and as we go through this process of coaching, usually I'll work with someone for six months uh, in extraordinary circumstances, uh, longer, 12 to 18 months, depending on, on what the requirement is of my client, the person that I'm working with. But a lot of times, once we start working together, things start to unravel a little bit in the first few months. You start to feel lost as you start to dive into these things. Initially, I sort of would panic. I'd be like, man, you start working with me and then everything starts crumbling around you. But I realized that's exactly the work that I meant to do with you because when have you had the biggest breakthroughs in your life? When have you had those big moments where your life has really turned around? I'm guessing it's come from the breakdowns. I'm guessing it's come from the time where you hit that rock bottom moment where you you felt depressed and you're like, something has got to change. I don't care what it is, something's changing. And you had a breakthrough and and your life changed from that moment. Maybe it was a breakup that you didn't see coming that you were blindsided by and that the pain of it was horrific at the time. But when you look back at it, you go, wow, actually, that changed my life and that freed me up and opened me up to dot, 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 fill in the blank or losing your job or whatever. So really what I do when I work with you is I actually end up triggering some breakdowns. So we start to unravel some things. We go where, you know, no one's taken you before. I have a deeper conversation with you. I can guarantee than anybody's ever had with you in your life. I'm going to take you places that you didn't even know existed within you and start unpacking some of those things in your life that you haven't looked at. And from that, you can start to see, oh man, maybe my relationship is not quite right. Maybe I'm not in the job that I should be doing. Maybe my relationship with my parents is superficial and actually I do have a desire to have a deeper relationship with them. And so it starts to become like it feels like your world is starting to fall away around you and you start to feel like, man, is everything I've been living, is it wrong? Have I been doing it wrong? And you start to feel very lost. And I've been there a million times, so that's why I can speak about this with such clarity. But what I've learned is you have to be lost first. But in order to find your path, to find your truth, to find your purpose, your mission, you have to actually be lost. See, I I heard a a great example, and we can all relate to this, I think, of like driving around when you're young with your parents in your car and the difference between how your dad and your mum handles being lost. Your dad doesn't acknowledge that he's lost because that's what we do as men. Uh, We just keep driving. We go, everything's fine, it's okay, if I just take a ride up here, I know where we are, like we're going to be back on track in no time. So although he's lost, he prefers just to pretend that he knows where he's going and just kind of doing his own thing, not asking for help, just looking down each different road, uh, hoping that the road will reveal itself. What your mum would do is she'd say, let's pull it over, let's stop, we're lost. We're lost. Let's pull out a map, figure out where we are on the map, And then let's plot our path and see if we can be found from that place. Now, if you're the little boy or little girl sitting in the back seat, your dad looks like the one that knows what he's doing, but actually he's lost. He's just plowing on as if he knows what he's doing. 
your mum looks like the one that's lost because she's saying, hey, we're lost. But actually, she's the one that's closer to being found. So where are you in that example? Are you just blasting through life, pretending you know what you're doing and just hoping that it's all going to work out? Or are you willing to have a little bit of a breakdown and confront some of those things and actually admit that you're lost? Because once you get to that point, and it's a scary place, don't get me wrong, I'm not here to make your life comfortable, I'm here to get you the life that you deserve, that you were put on this earth to live. So if you're willing to be lost and not know where the hell you're meant to be or what you're meant to be doing, well, that's the first step to being found. And that's a nice segue into my guest this week, Greg Frucci. I love Greg and I just enjoy this conversation so much. Here's a guy that knows about being lost. Greg blasted off from the east coast of America trying to get to Portugal, I think, in the west coast of Europe by himself on a yacht and he ended up getting into a huge storm. Like, can you imagine anything more terrifying than being in a storm on a yacht by yourself? Incredible story of survival, of fear, of coming through fear, of man, just really confronting, you know, the depths of yourself through experiences. And that's what Greg does for people. He takes them on incredible adventures to help them learn more about themselves. Great conversation, exciting. I apologize, the sound quality is a little rough on this one just because of our internet connections. Hopefully that doesn't damage the message too much because Greg's such an incredible guy. I'll let the story speak for itself. So without further ado, enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Greg Frucci. It was wild growing up. I'm the eldest son of a United States Marine Corps fighter pilot. I was born in a U.S. Naval hospital in Beaufort, South Carolina, in the United States back in 1960. And I don't even know what that place looks like. A couple of years later, Dad got transferred to and um, He was in the Marine Corps for 20 years, so that's basically the way I grew up. I went to six different elementary schools. He was about to get shipped off to... Tripoli, Libya, uh, with a promotion to colonel leading the military attache for the United States Embassy in Libya in 1976, approximately. And I was fired up. I thought that was kind of cool. I says, I mean, that's the way I grew up, you know, bouncing all over the place. And people would say, damn, dude, it'd be nice if you could just be in one place and get to know people and become friends and blah, 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 blah. And, and after a while... I learned that I, through that bouncing around, I became highly adaptable to new situations and, and, and learned to love it. And that way of growing up, that way of being has carried forth into adulthood. I'm 50, I'll be 57 next month. And I've never lived in one town for more than nine years. Did that twice once in North Carolina, once in the San Francisco Bay Area of California. But even within those times, I moved a couple of times. And it's been cool. You know, growing up, I, I would say people would ask me, you know, what do you want? What do you want in life? And for years, Nathan, the answer was twofold. It was peace and it was home. I want to be home. And that answer, I want to be home, carried through all the way into my 50s. When I was 50 years old, I quote unquote took to the sea. After two failed marriages and a ridiculous relationship and not working in the profession that I went to college for, which is architecture. I worked for architect as an architect for 20 years. That's a whole other story. But anyway, when I was 50, I took to the sea. I jumped in a 30-foot sailboat by myself as a novice sailor, took off from Wilmington, North Carolina, where I was living at the time, bound for Portugal all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. I didn't make it. My first stop was going to be Bermuda, and I got halfway there and was about 300 miles offshore alone and sailed into the center of a developing tropical system, a developing hurricane, and the Coast Guard came to visit me. I made it to Bermuda, boat was damaged, I left it there during hurricane season, flew back to Bermuda, jumped in her again, again alone, and sailed back to the United States. And while I was out there, I just would say it, I want to be home, Nathan. And then it hit me while I was out there. I'm home wherever I am. 
And the memories that we have, which are illusion anyway, the only thing that's real is this conversation that you and I are having right now. Everything else is an illusion. It's not real. And then once that hit me, I realized that every place I've lived has been a blessing. Everything that I've gone through in life, some of which I would call hell. The day that I went through that storm 300 miles out there by myself as a novice sailor, the first 12, 13 hours of an 18-hour event, I saw it as hell. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to go through that. Who would? It almost killed me. And then I turned around. I was running with the storm. I've got waves at my back coming at me at 20, 25 knots that are 20 foot plus, And I'm surfing some of them. Some of them are just passing me by. Some of them are breaking over the stern of my boat. I looked to check and see what wave was approaching me, and I saw three whales surfing down the face of that wave about 50 yards off of my sun, off of the back of my boat to the left side. They were air breathers, just like you and me, dude, and they were having fun. Changed my attitude in an instant. It didn't change my attitude. I changed my attitude by choice in the moment. I was in the present moment. And I was, I'm out here, 300 miles out here. There's not a damn thing I can do to change that fact, that reality. I am going through something that is potentially hellish. So I am going to choose right now to be happy. And I was. You saw three whales in the exact same situation going through the exact same thing and enjoying themselves. Yeah, they were digging it. Why not dig it? Why not have fun with this? And my memories of it now are epic. <laughs> I mean, Nathan, I have lived an incredible life. Yes, I've gone through hellishness. Divorce sucks. For a time, I was even suicidal during that time. I've never said that out loud publicly. I was in my 30s. I didn't know. All I saw was what somebody else, quote unquote, did to me or the situation that that somebody else put me in and they were making me sad. They were making me angry. They were making this or that. And all of that took me some time to realize really until my fifties that all of my creations are mine. I am responsible for all of my creations. So therefore I can choose to be happy just like those whales were choosing to have fun surfing down the face of 20 foot waves, man. They still got to come up for air. They can't stay underneath that. First, they got to come up and breathe. So why not have fun doing it? Do you ever wonder how your life might have been different if you were in a just the same home, you know, for 18 years, one town, same friends? Do you think you would have still ended up on this path? Or do you think it really was the making of your product of your childhood? That's a big one, dude. Yeah, I used to. I wish that I could grow up like such and such and be around the same people all the time. But no, uh-uh. I mean, I'm one of those that believes that I chose to come here in, in this plane of existence to go through school to learn something. And the path that I have lived used to be full of regrets. Hell, I wanted to be a fighter pilot just like my old man. But I chose not to. So, no, uh-uh. this is the path that I have gone down and all of the experiences in my life. Pulling my reserve parachute five times <laughs> as a skydiver and almost dying, being out there at sea, going through what I went through, almost dying. You have a different relationship with death? I have a total different relationship with death. Death is just this body that I happen to be standing in right now going through a life. I don't fear death, and I'm not going to make it happen. I am going to – it's a fine line between a death wish and a life wish. And people used to accuse me of taking to the sea in the way that I did on a boat that didn't have a lifeboat, didn't have radar, didn't have that as a novice after an intense breakup as a death wish. But it was the opposite. It was a life wish. 
And the bodies that we stand in, you and I, Nathan, are eternal beings. We are children of God. I just choose to use that word because I grew up in the Christian church. I am not a Christian anymore. I am not a card-carrying member of any religion. We can get into that one if you want to later, but I know I am a, call it Allah, call it Yahweh, call it it, call it source, call it spirit, call it universe. I don't care. There's no judgment. Those are just human created names that I don't attach myself to anymore. Once we understand that we are eternal beings, just happen to be here chilling out for a while in the school learning stuff, then death is meaningless. Yeah, it's an interesting, you said, like the fine line between a, a life wish and a death wish. Like that's an interesting way to look at it because you think of the 20-year-old guy that is angsty and, you know, doesn't have much to live for. So he drives motorbikes 100 miles an hour in the rain because he doesn't have anything to live for. Like he, do, he doesn't care whether he's living or dying. So he goes and does those crazy things to feel something, I guess. And then there's, you know, you, you said you used to be a skydiver. Like, what is skydiving other than putting yourself into a situation where you potentially could die in order to feel, you know, as close to the present moment as possible? Yeah, what comes up is I don't skydive much anymore. And, but when I did, people would say, well, why, why would you do that, man? Why would you risk dying like that? Do you, do you have a death wish? And my answer was always something to the effect of you get in your car and you drive down the freeway and you don't pull over during a heavy thunderstorm because you've got some place to go. You've got that wedding to get to on time or you've got that store to get to because they're having a Christmas sale or whatever. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. We all make choices in life and we're all accountable to our own choices. And flying through the air is a wonderful, powerful experience that only the person going through the experience can understand. I used to ride motorcycles too. I've ridden motorcycles through the rain. I was in my 30s. Don't ride them anymore. But this is a wonderful life. This is a wonderful experience. And we can be responsible to these bodies that we stand in, that we exist in, by putting the food in our bodies that, that the body really, really wants. And there's no judgment. I don't care if somebody's a vegetarian, a vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO, eats meat. It doesn't matter. Whatever the body needs, the body should get. When you said, you know, you came into this new awareness, this awakening around 50 or so, was there a defining moment when it all came together or was it a, a slow process of you know, realizing all this stuff? Transformation's a process, I think, Nathan. Transcendence, actually, I think is a better word. And yes and no is the answer to your question. Sometimes in life we have major events that create an activation, that become a trigger for an activation. And, and the answer to your question is at sea. You know, that one particular moment where that one particular flowing moment in time of 18 hours going through that storm was a massive activation. And what caused you to, to plan the trip in the first place? So there's another one. Thank you. Going through a breakup with a woman, going through a breakup in a relationship uh, back in 2010, I was making payments on a used 30-foot sailboat that I really couldn't afford to do, but I was doing it anyway, and thought just popped into my head. So this is a little bit complex, but... At the time, I, I had a part-time job where I was a site contractor for a meeting planner, and he flew me all over the world, basically. And he had recently, just after the breakup, he had flown me to Portugal. I fell in love with it. I was having a conversation with a very good friend, and he asked me, he said, like, how was Portugal? And I said, it was fantastic. I could live there. And he said, 
well, you have a boat. It can make it. Can you? I was in a place where I really didn't want to be anyway. I'd just broken up with somebody. It's just me and the dog, and it was brilliant. Yeah, it's easy to fall in love with Portugal. <laughs> have you had those moments? Yeah, I've had those moments. I've had those moments. And I, you said something you know, when you messaged me today before the call about fear and confronting fear. And I, I realized that all I've done the last few years, you know, the last five years have been the most incredible of my life. And all I've done is lean into fears over and over and over again. And I realized like how much of my life before that had been controlled by fear, the fear of fitting in, the fear of not wanting to be isolated, the fear of not wanting to be weird or different or have no friends or be lonely. But I wasn't happy. You know, I wasn't had this incredible life, but I had no way to appreciate it because it had been created from fear. So for me, over the last five years, it's been nothing but just leaning into one fear after the other. I want to make a podcast where I just talk to men. Well, what if people think that's stupid? What if people think, well, you know, you're just a pilot from New Zealand. Who the hell are you to, you're not a journalist. You don't have any training in interviewing people. Who the hell are you to do that? I don't know. You're, You're right. That does sound scary and that, you're right. I'm going to do it anyway and see what happens. <laughs> now I'm on a, a call in this moment with this amazing guy telling me this fucking incredible story about sailing through the ocean in a storm. And so like for me, it's just been leaning into fear. And does it get any easier? Not really. I can kind of go, oh yeah, that's fear. Then lean into it. But mm-hmm. I just become more comfortable with the fear and, and realizing that almost none of my fears have manifested as I've pushed through them. So that, yeah, for me, yeah. yeah, I've had a whole bunch of moments like that, giving up my job, giving up my career, leaving home, leaving New Zealand, wanting to live a location-independent life, you know, and fear would have stopped me, but and it still does in places, but now I'm aware of it. And I'm aware of, oh, this is what my heart wants to do. This is what is within me wanting to come out. And now I can choose, oh, do you want to fall into the fear that's in your mind, in your head, that's created? Or do you want to follow that thing that's burning inside of you? I read somewhere recently, and it's truth. Fear creates more fear. Fear feeds on itself. I mean, you just did. I mean, and I can reflect back on my life even until recently. And this kind of answers the the question before about transformation. I mean, it's an ongoing process. And it's a beautiful one. And the more fear that we uncover, the more fear that we allow to come to the surface and deal with, the more we can attack it and conquer it. I mean, even after all of that, of being at sea over two different legs of the journey over 2000 miles of being in in the open ocean alone after 17 days total being alone at sea, people say, Oh, Fruchi, you are brave. You're fearless. You're this, you're that. And there's an aspect of that I'll own. But the reality is when I took to the sea, it was kind of a cowardly act. I was running away from something, but in order to understand courage, have to be a coward at some point. And I was. In order to understand fear and defeat it, you got to recognize it. I wrote and published a book about my adventure and I held a lot of crap back out of fear of what other people, just like you were saying, out of a fear of what somebody might think of what I might say is wrong or stupid or negative or good or pop, all of the stuff that we wrap around how we think we show up in the world is an illusion and it really doesn't matter. You're right. Probably a hundred percent of the fears that I've had are complete and utter crap. They're illusion. Unless we hold on to something. Now that's a different thing there. We can approach something from a negative or from a fear based standpoint, like a relationship with somebody. And if we constantly create actions based on a fear of something happening, we're going to bring that into manifestation. We will bring it into form. I've done that before. 
that last ridiculous relationship. And I use that term not about her, but about me and about the way that I approached that relationship. Just about every action I took was out of fear of losing her. And then I lost her. Good thing. So coming from fear didn't actually stop the thing from happening anyway. <laughs> exactly. The thing is, as the divine beings that we are, the creations of God that we are, again, whatever you want to call it, we're eternal. If you want to accept that as so, or it can be so, then there is nothing to fear. The eternal being that I am is eternal. It's infinite. I just happen to be walking around in a body right now, chilling out, learning stuff. The majority of people listening, I think, are paralyzed by their fears, honestly. So what, what's your relationship with fear now? Bring it. Let it rise to the surface. Because a lot of the fears that we have are unconscious. We're in denial of so much grief. Oh, my God. Five stages of grief. Denial. We go through denial. We go through anger. Then we go through a bargaining phase. And then we go through depression. And then finally acceptance after that. And you see like grief is like a like pushing through a fear. Yes, it is pushing through the fear that there's nothing else out there. 2001, my father goes fishing like he did every single day. That was the my dad. After he retired from the Marine Corps, all he wanted to do was go fishing. And that's what he did every single day in the ocean in a 17 foot bass boat with a trolling motor on it. People would call him crazy and stupid for doing that. He did it anyway. He was the type of fisherman people would follow. Oh, where's Al going? <laughs> they would follow him. And then one day I got a call from my brother. I was living in California. Dad's dead. They found him floating in the water about 400 yards away from his boat. Nobody really knows what happens. I went through a grief process for years after that one. When was this? 2001. Ten years almost before I took to the sea. What was it? As your dad, as a fighter pilot, I imagine that's a pretty cool dad to have when you're a kid. Your dad flies jets around the world. <laughs> How did you perceive him? Was that something you were aware of? So that's a great question. And I think this applies to all of us, man. We don't know really who people are unless they demonstrate or tell us or we hear stories about them. And when I was a kid growing up, I mean, dad was not only was he in the Marine Corps, an officer in the Marine Corps, but he was an old school Marine. And uh, any of your people are in the military that are listening or if you're in the Marine Corps here in the United States, or you have family that, that was back in the day, you'll understand what I'm talking about, which is he was hard on me. He got physical with me, me more than my brother or my sister, because they were younger and you know, I was the oldest. And But at the same time, it was cool as shit having a father as a fighter pilot. <laughs> I was in the third grade one, that one time and he took me out on the tarmac and put me in the cockpit with him. He left the canopy in a F-8 Crusader, just like all jets, punch a button and it rotates up and, or it closes. And he left the canopy up, fired up his F-8, and drove me around the tarmac with me sitting in his lap as a fourth grader. <laughs> Pretty cool. <laughs> Who gets to do that? And I was badass. And Dad, he was in Vietnam, uh, flying out of Da Nang in 19... 67 and 68 was there during the Tet Offensive. And regardless of what anybody's judgments are about that war or police action or whatever the hell you want to call it, dad was one of the highest decorated fighter pilots for the Marine Corps during the Vietnam War. And he came back with a chest full of metal, but he never talked about him. I would ask him from time to time and he just sometimes he would tell me a story here and there and sometimes he wouldn't. So here's the thing. You know, he went through some stuff and he went through a transformation himself. And he wouldn't talk about stuff. And it wasn't until he died, one of his old fighter pilot buddies that flew with him in Vietnam showed up at his memorial service and started telling us stories. And then we found Dad's trunk with all of the citations of the medals and the descriptions of why he got the Distinguished Flying Cross twice. 
and they read like movie scripts. Dad was my only hero. As tough as he was on me, as tough as he was on people, he was and will always be my only hero. Did you feel connected to him? Wow. Yeah. At sea, I did. I mean, I won't go into the whole story, but there was a bird that I'd never seen before. Beautiful white bird, wingspan of probably three or four feet, body about two or three feet long, and these two long tail feathers. Mostly white with black markings on it. I'd never seen it before. Came to the boat, tried to land on the mast, came down within like 10 feet of my head, and I thought it was hungry. And so, you know, like some people do with seabirds and seagulls, will break off a piece of bread and toss it to the bird and they'll catch it in their mouth or they'll go down to the water and get it. I threw a piece of bread towards the bird and it just went right past him and landed in the water. And a different kind of seabird landed in the water, picked it up and flew off. And this particular bird stared at me, hovered for like 10 minutes. And then flew around the boat and took off to the horizon. Got it all on film. I filmed this adventure. And the next day, it happened again, and again, and again, and again, all the way to Bermuda. Didn't know what it was. I get to Bermuda, stumbling around, because I still have my sea legs, and I don't have my land legs yet, and I'm just kind of like roaming around, and I, I wanted to buy a postcard to send to, to somebody back in the United States, and I, I see this bird on a postcard. Flip it over, and it says, the Bermuda Longtail, the national bird of Bermuda. Hmm. I thought, huh. That's interesting. A couple of weeks later, when I decided to leave my boat there to get repaired, on the way to the airport, a cab driver, an older Bermudian did, it's like a 20-minute drive to the airport, and he, he looks at me and he goes, did you sail in here? And I said, well, yeah, how'd you know? Are you a sailor? And he said, no, I'm not. I'm an islander. You know, I've been here my whole life, and you look a bit crusty. <laughs> <laughs> you can spot a sailor. Yeah. Yeah, I did. You know, I was all, you know, I had sunburn marks all over me, and I had a scruffy beard that I never shaved when I was at sea, and I just looked a little bit frustrated. And so he said, do you mind telling me a story? And so I told him the story of the long tail coming to see me. Long pause. He just kind of drifted off and looked out the window, and he looked back at me, and, and he said, now, mind you, I, I'd never seen this guy before, never met this man before. And he looks at me, and he says, is your father still alive? I said, well, no. He died at sea about 10 years ago. And he said, oh. Then he said, what did your father do? And I said, he was a fighter pilot in the Marine Corps for 20 years. And he gets this big smile on his face. And he looks at me, and he says, all seriousness. He goes, some of us older Bermudians believe that the long tails carry the spirits of loved ones who have passed. That was your father. Oh. Uh, yeah. What did you feel? I remember feeling a chill go down my spine and a profound sense of peace and knowing I was still going through stuff, Nathan. I was still processing the breakup and still processing the intensity and processing not being able to go to Portugal, maybe, and not knowing if my boat was going to be repairable and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, I just felt this wash of peace. The interesting thing is, Nathan, five months later, when I flew back to Bermuda after hurricane season was over, it's the end of November. And I sat there for three weeks looking for the proper weather window. As a pilot, you get what I'm talking about. Anybody's listening out there knows the sea or has a relationship with weather, you know that weather can change just like that. You need to look for an opening to be safe. And so that's what I did. And it just so happens that the day that I took off to the sea was the day after the 10th anniversary of my father, John. And... The first morning after departing Bermuda, heading south, one came to me. Again, same thing. We were on the boat, chilled out with me for about 10, 15 minutes, 
staring at me. Circled the boat and took off to the horizon. And then on the, the morning of the third day, I had a conversation with it. I said, you know what? I'm going home. Because all the way back to our, our initial conversation is I just, I knew that I was home. And then he flew around the boat, took off, and I never saw another one again. So interesting. So many people like guests that we've had on the podcast talk about as they go through this process, you know, or this discovery at different points in their life, you know, having those moments where you get complete with your father or your mother, you know, father in particular for a man through different processes and understanding them. And I'm not sure if it was you that sent me or something I read today that said you can't, you know, until you accept the death of the, the body of your parent, you can't fully enjoy the spirit of them. And it sounds like that's kind of like the process that you went through. It is exactly the process. So do you feel him around you now? I, I do. I, yeah, I do. Every day, Nathan. I feel like I can call on him anytime I want to. It goes back to a connection to eternity or infinity or, again, God or whatever you want to call it. Time really doesn't have a meaning. The physical self that we are, the physical world that we see and that we exist in is really all just vibration anyway. Scientifically, at a molecular level, you know, you've got these little objects spinning around the nucleus. What's in the space between the objects and the nucleus? These subatomic particles get smaller and smaller and smaller, and there's space there. Everything is in motion. So, yes, I believe and know that I can communicate with anybody at any time. My sister, two years after my father died, my sister died in her sleep. She was 41 years old. And here's something to take home. I hadn't communicated with my sister out of choice for about six months before she died. We had been arguing. I was angry with her. I was 43 and still in a place of blame outwardly to others for things that happened to me. I was still processing my father's death. And out of my own choice, I chose not to speak with my sister. And then I get a call from my brother. She's dead. If there is somebody that you want to talk to, that you want to have a conversation with, but out of fear or out of a sense of superiority, you don't feel like you should, think again. This is another common theme that comes up in the podcast over and over again. Is a common theme for everybody. We all have families. We all have parents, siblings, aunties, uncles that we didn't choose. And that... A lot of times I hear people say, like, if it was up to me, I wouldn't be friends with this person. This is not a person that I would interact with in, in normal life. So just because I'm related by blood, why the hell should I put myself around them? Or what's your spin on that now that you've gone through these incredibly challenging scenarios? That's, that's a tough question, Nathan. <laughs> I'm bummed right Yeah, that. I mean, it's, I, don't, I, I don't think there's a... You know, a definitive answer. I'm just, I just want to know what's there from you for someone that's experienced that. Well, that's why it's a tough question because I'm kind of going through that now, actually. You know, it's a tough thing for me personally to not be in judgment sometimes. Politically, stuff goes on, and I'm not going to dive into politics because it just makes me want to puke anytime yeah. I do. And it's boring. Going yeah, it is boring. And <laughs> what? The reality is things occur in the world that we walk around in that piss us off or that we don't like. And it's easy to go into judgment very quickly. We're either going to judge ourselves about something or we're going to judge somebody else about something. And when we're in judgment, we're in condemnation. When we're in condemnation, we're putting something outside of who and what we truly are. 
And if I consider myself, and I do, a child of God, or again, whatever you want to call it, everybody else is. You are. You're a creation of the eternal. It's like everybody else. So if I judge you, Nathan, about something, if I condemn you about something, I am condemning God. It's one of the reasons why I'm not a member of any religion. Religions have bastardized that concept. They preach it, don't judge, and yet it's done all the time. So I don't have to like somebody and be out of judgment at the same time. Just because I don't like somebody doesn't mean I have to invite them to dinner or be in conversation with what could be a low vibration conversation. For instance, if I have a family member that wants to talk about politics all the time over dinner, and just the mere thought of that makes me want to vomit, why put myself in that position? I can choose not to. I can still choose to love them as my family member and be with them certain times, express myself as the loving being that I am, perhaps that will help them. So the people that I walk through life with, close to me, you know, I talk about the five a lot with certain people. There, there are basically five people that will have my back regardless of what happens in life, and I will have theirs, and they know it, and we know it. And those are the ones we keep really, really close and we maintain contact with constantly. I can still be present with a family member that I don't necessarily agree with on much and still love them and still be there for them, both in the physical and in the non-physical. Did you find a way to forgive yourself for whatever happened with your sister? Yes, I did. And that happened at sea. Same time that was going on with my dad, I had, <laughs> when we were alone, we talked to ourselves. And if you're alone for eight days straight, nine days straight, you end up having a lot of conversations with yourself. <laughs> Nobody there to judge you, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's the perfect scenario. <laughs> <laughs> and so I talked to my sister a lot when I was out there. And, uh, you know, if I see her as an eternal being, there's no judgment there. Yes, I've forgiven myself. And man, that is a big thing we have to do as humans is the moment we don't forgive ourselves, self-worth goes out the window. The moment we begin to forgive ourselves for anything, worth comes back and we can connect to divine worth. Yeah, it's a powerful process. I, I was reading somewhere that in terms of frequency, you've talked about frequency a, a few times before, but the, our whole world and our existence occurs at different frequencies. And the lower the frequency, the, that comes from fear and judgment and all those kind of places. And then the higher frequencies are, are going closer to those, those flow states and the states of euphoria is the higher frequency you operate in. In all the research they did around meditation and, and different practices of meditation, the thing that got people to the highest frequency the quickest was forgiveness. Yes. And realizing that, you know, all forgiveness is self-forgiveness. We hold judgment or we're angry at somebody or we're not speaking to somebody. We're the ones drinking the poison. We think we're trying to hurt them, but we're the ones that are holding on to it. It's a, a weight that we're carrying. It's something that holds us down. It's an energy that we have to deal with. And so going through those forgiveness exercises constantly, it's not, uh, I often tell people, it's not letting someone off the hook. It's not saying, hey, what you did was fine. All is forgiven. It's understanding that all forgiveness is self-forgiveness. And for order, in order to live a, a free and open and authentic life in the highest state possible, you have to forgive and you have to release those different energies for people. And it's now proven in science that the more you go through those practices of forgiving people for what they may or may not have done or asking for forgiveness as well for what you may have done, the higher your frequency is able to go, which I think is incredible. I agree. And it's funny, you talk about meditation, 
my meditation practice as a conscious thought to say, okay, now I will meditate, didn't occur until 2015, basically barely two years old. And just for the record, I do what's called primordial sound meditation that I learned through the Chopra Institute. And the 30-minute totally silent meditation sound is sort of a misnomer that I won't get into. But if you, if you want to look it up, it's if you go to ChopraFoundation.com, I think you'll find primordial sound meditation. But it wasn't until I learned that process, and now it's part of my ritual. Every day I, I wake up, I walk my dog, I make my coffee, I take him for a walk, and I go silent for 30 minutes and meditate before I look at my phone, turn on the computer, speak to any other human, because it sets the pace for the entire day. And I didn't realize it until I went through that process that that's what the sailing adventure was. That's what running is. That's what I'm a surfer. That's what surfing is. It's meditation. Different forms. There's no right way or wrong way to meditate. And in that process, start my meditation. There are a series of four questions that I ask. And the last question, the fourth question is, what am I grateful for? And when we go through that process of gratitude, it leads to forgiveness. And you're right. You know, if we learn to forgive ourselves for whatever we have done or taken action on or whatever, the process of forgiving others becomes easier. And it's not just theoretical. It's not just an ideal. It's experiential. And when our egos... Our small selves experience anything. Our egos require proof. Our little minds require proof of anything. And once we feel that action being taken, the verbal action of gratitude, grace becomes a verbal action. And there's freedom there, man. I love that you brought up gratitude because for me that gets me in the highest frequency when i'm meditating when i do my gratitude practice that's the one that really elevates me to the next level of frequency like i just feel incredible once i'm going through 10 or 15 minutes of just what i'm grateful for and it includes the challenges like you know some of the the biggest breakthroughs i've had have come through the biggest breakdowns like i wouldn't be here doing what i'm doing now if i hadn't have gone through a bad breakup four years ago you know, so I'm grateful and, and I'm careful not to sort of pick and choose what I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for everything. And that's what elevates me into that really high frequency. And everything that you're talking about, surfing or skydiving or, or gratitude, it's all stuff that brings you into the present moment. Like, you know, all of the stuff, I've heard it all before and over and over and over. And for me, I, I have to experience something. Like you can tell me this a hundred times and I'm like, yep, great, got it, gratitude, frequency, yep, cool. But until I've experienced it myself, I don't trust it. And so now I know the feeling of when I'm grateful, when I'm just going through what I'm grateful for in this moment, then I'm not thinking about the past. I'm not thinking about, you know, where I suck, you know, which is something that gets to me occasionally. I'm not thinking about what I need to do later that day. I'm just going, man, right now in this moment, I'm grateful for these things. And so I'm right there in the present moment. Why do I love flying? Because when I'm flying an airplane, I'm not thinking about, you know, I should have said this, I should have said that. I'm just loving what I'm doing in that moment. And I think that's what I said before. It's the same for skydiving. All we're trying to do by doing these things is by getting out of our heads and just getting into an experience of the present moment. Not thinking not wondering, not trying, not beating ourselves up, not doing anything, just being in the moment. And that's our most natural, highest vibration is if getting ourselves in the moment. And just being aware of, like what you said, the most important thing in the world right now is this conversation I'm having with you because that's all that's happening right now. It's the only thing that's real. 
everything else is an illusion. And you're right. That notion of being in the present moment, mindfulness, which I didn't understand that until I was at sea dealing with that storm for 18 hours. And the only thing I could do, I could not let go of the helm. I could not let go of the wheel. I tried one time to reach for a bottle of water and the boat almost capsized because a wave caught me off the side. I'm like, I can't do that. I didn't let go for 18 hours. You have to stay focused. You have to stay present. And as a pilot, my God, your focus must be incredible. There's lots of times when you can take yourself into that hyper-focused state. And that's what we love, especially as men. That's what we love. You know, we love getting into that hyper-focused state. And as men, when we are in that hyper-focused state of being in the present moment with a woman or another man, if that's your preference, whatever, it doesn't matter. That's where love resides. Love is real. What have you learned about love? So you've been through these relationships that have tested you and challenged you to the point, you know, where you, the thoughts of suicide came through your head. It was, uh, you know, one of the most challenging moments of your life, clearly. What have you learned from that? That love's not an emotion. I mean, we can have loving emotions, but love really is a state of being. It's a way of existing. And (laughs) I keep learning that lesson, Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing because I've actually recently gone through it. And it's cool because we keep learning these lessons of being present with someone that we desire. And if we stay in that moment of desires, this is what I've learned. If we stay in desire, we have thoughts running around in our head of what we want to do or what we wish we could have done or all, even when we're with them, we're looking them in the eye and all of a sudden desire happens and all this stuff, we're making stuff up in our head and we're not there with them. If you're with somebody, look them in the eye. Pick one eye. Pick the left eye. Just stay there with them, breathe with them. As they exhale, inhale, as you exhale, mirror your breath to theirs and you stay right with them. The more I learn from marriage number one, marriage number two, (laughs) ridiculous relationship, and then a couple other relationships, it's cool, I keep learning. My knowing of being present gets more and more refined, and it's beautiful. The challenge for me is my personality. You know, I'm a traveler, adventurer by nature, and it's it's actually driven from a fear I've realized recently, and it's it's driven from the fear of missing out, fear of not mm-hmm. making the most of everything, and. You know, it causes me to always want something new, always looking for something exciting, always looking for the new experience because life doesn't move fast enough for me and life can get boring if I don't add my my essence to it and, and keep moving around. And in relationships, that's my biggest challenge is my personality is the type that always keeps one foot out the door, you know, that can be 80% in with someone but just keeps an eye out for something better. So that's, I mean, it feels like sad when I say it, you know, because I don't say that out loud much, but that's the thing that I am, I'm going to say working on because it's it's not something I'm working on. It's something I'm trying to understand. And I know there's a way of being within that that can have me being fully connected and fully committed and invested in someone. That's what I'm being with at the moment. You know, I hear in your personality the similar trait, you know, of travel and going from place to place. And I wonder if that's influenced your relationships at all. In a big way. And, you know, it's funny. I'm so glad you brought this up. Oh, something just dropped in. It's incredible. So adventure. It's the driving need of all males. Maybe not all males. I don't know all males. But most of the males that I've come into contact with, adventure is our driving need. And that's our biggest challenge with females, if we're heterosexual, is dealing with that. It, it's happened several times with me. 
part of the downfall of that relationship that ended up being the trigger for me taking off when that started was when I bought the sailboat and she knew how I am. I love adventure. I love taking off and exploring the world. It's just, I mean, I could, I could explore the rest of my life and it still wouldn't be enough. You know, I've got one foot out the door all the time too, but there are females out there who feel the same way. Even if it's not adventure, if it's a job. In 2014, I dated a woman for about three months. I was living on a boat in Sausalito because all I could afford at the time was living on a boat, a tiny little boat. It was a great existence. And I was working for a company at the time and she and I met. It was, we had a great solid connection. She was a beautiful soul, a beautiful woman. And we had dinner one night and I was really excited. And I said, Hey, they came to me and they told me that they want to promote me. And she said, well, what does that mean? I said, well, if I take this promotion, that means they send me away. It could be two hours away. It could be 30 minutes away, but they're going to send me away. And, and she said, well, I like living where I'm living. And long story short, about three weeks later, we've broken up. She broke up with me because I was excited about having one foot out the door. So choice comes into this one. Do we choose to live our lives for somebody else or do we choose to live our lives for ourselves? If we choose to live our lives for somebody else, regret's going to come in, anger's going to come in, sadness is going to come in, all sorts of things are going to come in and it's going to destroy that relationship anyway. We live for ourselves and we create happiness and we create love and we can spread that endlessly throughout the world, especially to whatever partner that we end up with. Yeah, it's, it's coming to terms with that desire to a whole bunch of things. I mean, we could do a whole freaking podcast on this, but that fear of being alone, you know, that old chestnut, the, the desire to want to have sex with someone that you find sexually attractive, you know, the desire to share experiences with someone. There's all these desires that, you know, if we fall into those desires, then we start to lose ourselves within that and we start to become our desires. And it's about understanding like that you have all this magic and like you said, this endless amount of love and creativity from within you that you were put on this earth to express. And if you fall victim to your desires, that part of you has to be shut off in some way. Whereas if you trust that, you know, if there is somebody out there that is put on this earth to do something similar to you and that with your energies combined, you both can express your gifts even more powerfully. If you trust that that is available to you, if you remain open to it, then it's going to be so much more powerful than just giving into some fear of loneliness or the desire to be gratified by somebody. And, you know, boy, is this a fresh concept for me, but I feel it. Can I tell you a quick story, Nathan? Of course. So I'm a martial artist also, and this, the second form of martial arts that I started practicing was Filipino stick fighting, Filintalak. And how I got into that was I met this dude, Filipino guy, who is a beautiful soul. He's, the, the dude's just I called him my spiritual guide for you for a couple of years when I was training with him, but I had just gone through the divorce with my second wife, 2007, and we'd split up and I moved out of the house and I'm living on this little island called Ocracoke Island off the coast of North Carolina. And um, Sonny, he came to visit me one day and for a couple of days and we worked out there and we were walking along the beach one day and after a workout and he said people are talking about you Greg that you're going through a midlife crisis I was 47 at the time I said that's bullshit <laughs> he started laughing and I said why are you laughing and he goes in the Filipino culture he grew up in a, a village called Kalinga in the Philippines, and he said in his village, when a man gets to be 
in his 40s, 50s, whatever, usually happens around that that time frame, he feels a call. And he feels a calling to go out, away from the village. And the villagers in his culture, in that culture, it's not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. It's not a quote-unquote crisis. It's part of who we are as men. And so the family, the wife, the children, the uncles, the aunts, the fathers, the mothers, they all come together and they celebrate. He has the calling and they throw a big ass party. The next morning he takes off into the bush and stays gone for as long as he stays gone. And then he comes back transformed into the man that he is changing into. Change is a process. It, it occurs. It happens. It's the thing that we can't stop. And so it's celebrated. And in Western culture, we don't. We call it a crisis. We call it wrong. Yeah, it's a reframing. What's the message that you want to leave with the listeners before we uh, wrap up here? Embrace the eternal you. Embrace your divinity. Embrace whatever you want to call it. I choose, I've made a choice not to align myself with any one religion. Been there, done that. I'm not saying close the churches or close governments or anything like that. I just, because it was part of my process. But just know this, you are not wrong. There is no need for fear. There is no need for anyone to tell you what you should do or should not do or need to do or need not to do. Every single being on this planet knows within him or her how to not do harm to others. You don't need a book to tell you that. You don't need a preacher to tell you that or a monk or anybody else because you already know it. You get a feeling inside of you when you're about to make a choice. You know if it's going to harm yourself. You know if it's going to harm another or you know the opposite. Fear is the basis for everything negative in this world. Fear feeds on itself. If somebody tells you, if you don't come to this building and worship and pray and say the things that I'm telling you to say, you're going to go to hell. That's fear. They're trying to create fear in you. They're trying to keep you under control. And they're trying to self-perpetuate themselves out of controlling you. And it's not necessary. My dark side is anger. <laughs> and I embrace it by owning it. Let it rise to the surface, and it's not that way anymore. And the anger was always based at somebody else trying to control me and my allowing them to control me by choice. It's my own choice. So I guess that's the message, Nathan, is choice. Whatever you're fearing, you can choose not to be in fear. Know yourself as the true, eternal, divine being that you are. And you're beautiful and you're worthy. It's like you have fear on one hand and choice on the other. And you get to decide which one you give into, which, one, which path you follow. No matter what, you're always making the choice. If you're in fear, you're choosing to be in fear. We're always in choice of how we react to anything. Choice does not go away. Sometimes it's unconscious, sometimes it's conscious, but it's always there. That's an awesome message. Thank you, Greg, for sharing that. Thank you for, for sharing your story. If people want to find out more about you, I know you've got uh, the book coming out. You, you're writing more books all the time. What's the best place to find out more about you and, and read more about that stuff? GregFritchie.com. That's what it's G-R-E-G-F-R-U. TCI.com or hit me up on Facebook. Just search for Greg Preaching on Facebook. Add me as a friend. I post stuff on my Facebook page all the time. Drive some people crazy and some people like it. <laughs> it's, it's truth, man. I just, I just speak truth. That's it. Yeah. I love that about you. And I love that about your Facebook is that your, your truth is just keeps coming through you stronger and stronger as time goes on. And I love it. And I encourage it because it's the real you and it's an awesome message and one that plenty of guys will resonate with. 
Thanks, man. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for coming on and uh, look forward to having you back again sometime. Anytime, brother. Anytime. This is fun. Well, thanks, man. Well, thank you to my fantastic guest this week, Greg Frucci. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. You can find more about Greg at his website, gregfrucci.com. The link will be in the show notes. And as always, share the episode around. Please tell your friends, get people on board with us. Like, you know, I'm loving having these conversations and I know you guys are enjoying listening to them. So uh, please spread the word and let's get more people tuning into this because I think it's uh, making a difference for people. That's all for this week, folks. Have a fantastic week. Go and get lost. (laughs) And I'll see you next week for episode 34 of the Nathan Seawood Show. That was the Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.